Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Today is the final instalment of our series in Isaiah. We've been doing this for just over a term. Um, we've chopped and changed. A few things have happened and we've spilled over into this term. We've fixed it up. Today's the last day. We're not reading the very last words of Isaiah, but we're reading from the last section. And the reason we've done this series is because Isaiah's great concern for you, for anyone who reads his book, is that your imagination would be affected by the pictures that he draws by the inspiration of God so that you see the world in such a way that the cry of your heart is, there is hope, not which is the tempting other alternative, isn't it? Shall we read together? Isaiah 65. We're going to read from verse 17 through to verse 25. If you've got your Bible out <clears throat> a little bit later on this morning, I'm going to be talking about some other bits that are around it, so that will be very useful for you. If you've got it with you, get it out. You'll, you'll be glad you did. But let's read 65 verse 17. Um, God speaking. See... I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it. No more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruits. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Told you there's hope. In the last week, I have had friends in our house and at our prayer meeting last Sunday evening who have talked with us about the devastation of war that he was experiencing in Ukraine. Those of you who were with us last Sunday night will have heard Serge share. I have also sat with a family in this church whose extended family lost everything fleeing the war in Syria and have now lost everything in two separate locations in Turkey and Syria because of the earthquake. I've watched, as you likely have, 
as the death toll has risen from the low thousands through into the tens of thousands, and it will keep on going. I've watched the unfolding of what will be a humanitarian disaster in that location because there are currently hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people homeless in the depths of a mid-Asian winter, and aid cannot get there because of corruption and war. This week, I've had a message from a good friend of mine, in fact, a friend of this church. He preached here last year, Andy from Horsham, leads a sister church in our movement. He's been diagnosed with cancer, starts treatment in the next few weeks. This week, I've watched as the news tells me of corruption and moral failings in our national government, and I've heard yet more stories of moral failings amongst church leaders. And the cry of my heart, friends is it shouldn't be like this. Do you know that feeling? It just shouldn't be like this. It's painful, it's sad, and it shouldn't be like this. That resonate for you at all? You know that feeling? Today's passage is for you. Should you feel like me? C.S. Lewis got this quote on the slide, Cisio. He wrote, If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The fact that we cry it shouldn't be like this is a sign that it shouldn't be like this. Amen? we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The resonance of that it shouldn't be like this tells us that it shouldn't be like this, and that we as humanity were made for something else. And we find comfort, don't we, as we read the scriptures and we read the story of Jesus' life, Because we find his response to these kind of things confirms our emotion. We read as Jesus weeps at the grave of his friend. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. We find Jesus give a dignity and an honor to people who are downtrodden, oppressed, and forgotten by the rest of the world. Because it shouldn't be like this. Jesus agrees. The Bible tells us on numerous occasions that his insides churned with compassion when he was confronted by need or hunger or people who were lost. Because it shouldn't be like this. Jesus' response to these things that hurt us tell us, no, this is right. It shouldn't be like this. The cry of Jesus' heart is, it shouldn't be like this. Just like the cry of your heart and the cry of my heart is, it shouldn't be like this. Of course, it's not to say that there's no beauty, no goodness, and no joy within creation. Of course there is. Of course there are. We see peace We find contentment. We we know a degree of wonder as we look at the world around us. 
as we look at the night sky, as we see the kindness of people enacted towards one another. But all of these good things, friends, you know this, they are tainted. They are distorted. They are restricted by a ruthless invader that robs, destroys, and whose motive is to incite fear in people. And as we read this final passage in Isaiah this morning, what we get is a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's complete and ultimate response to the pain and the brokenness and the injustice of our world. We see God's response to the cry, it shouldn't be like this. And his response is, do not fear. I will make everything new. It's important to have a little bit of context when we read passages like this. And I said as we began to read it that God is replying to Isaiah. If you skip back a chapter to chapter 64, verse 1. I've even put it on a slide because I am kind. You will find that Isaiah is lamenting. He's praying. He's saying, God, oh, would you rend the heavens and come down? You might know that verse if you've been in church a while. Would you part the heavens and descend to earth? It is bad. We need you. That's what Isaiah's lamenting. He goes on for a little while and 64 verse 12 says, Isaiah's final parting shot after all this, Lord. Will you hold yourself back? Where are you? Will you keep silent? Will you punish us beyond measure? Isaiah is desperate. The cry of his heart is, it shouldn't be like this. And then as you come into chapter 65, you find God replies. 65 verses 1 to 3 is the opening bit. God says, do you know what? I've been revealing myself to those who didn't ask. All day long, I've held up my hands, and it's to a people who continually provoke me to my face. It's what's known as escalating quickly. God's like, look, I've been revealing myself, I've been calling to you, and you've ignored me every single day. He goes on. It's not all good news. But the good news comes, I'll not keep silent. Don't worry, Isaiah. But I will put a payback in full, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, but I will not destroy them all. I'm going to bring forth my descendants from Jacob, that's Israel, my chosen people, my people who will seek me. They I will protect. They I will bring forth. They I will bless. You see, Isaiah calls to God for help. God come. And when God comes, we need to realize that two things happen. Number one, evil is judged. And number two, his people are saved. It's a dangerous prayer to pray, God, will you come, if you're not sure which side of that line you fall on. Because when God comes, evil can't stand. It's destroyed. And his people are saved. The coming of God is always judgment and salvation. One of my favorite lines in the whole Bible is in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. And it, it's like the pivot point of the whole book. One day we'll preach Revelation, not yet. And uh, 
And there's this brilliant phrase which I cling to in the moments where I'm like, God, it shouldn't be like this. And it says, the time has come for destroying the destroyers of the earth. I'm like, God, (laughs) this world is full of things that are destroying it. The time has come. Destroy what's destroying the earth. It's a judgment. And in that judgment, he then makes all things new. The destroyer is destroyed. Evil is destroyed. Sin, sickness, death, destroyed, wiped out. His people are saved and salvation comes. It shouldn't be like this. It will not always be like this. God's making everything new that we've just read about and you probably quite liked. Friends, it goes hand in hand with God judging evil and there is no other way. And then you arrive at the passage we read, verse 17 through to 25, and we find this incredible vision of hope. I mean, just allow your imagination to run wild in that picture for a moment. Everything is made new. Everything. There's no more premature death. No baby that lives for a few days. Do it, Lord. No one who dies before their allotted time. No more premature death. There's no more war or dispossession. People will build houses and plant seeds and they'll stay there and they'll get stuff. You've got to remember who this is written to. People who just lost the war were taken out of Israel to Babylon and their homes were inhabited by the people. But not just that, they then got to come back and they found their homes inhabited by the people. And they tried to rebuild Jerusalem and it... it, I mean, they did, but it was nothing like what was before. This is the great pain of their hearts. Their loved ones have died prematurely in a war, and what they had built and what they had planted is no longer theirs, but it's other people's. I don't think we quite know what most of us that feels like. We know what it feels like when someone else gets credit for your good idea. It's not very nice. But to have built a house and planted fields, be captured come back and find someone else enjoying the benefit who won't let you have it back, despite the fact it was unjustly taken away from you. It shouldn't be like this. There'll be no more fruitlessness. What you put your hand to will succeed. Your days will be like the trees. Friends, this vision of hope is like oxygen in the middle of a storm. Like when you're drowning in water, this is like the gas mask going on. (gasps) And that first breath of oxygen that fills your lungs instead of water. This is a message of hope that is supposed to reprogram our imaginations and how we see the world. And the words probably ring in your ears a little bit because they're reminding you of somewhere else in the scriptures. Pop quiz, anyone? Revelation 21. Should we read it together? I can't see that far. My eyes are deteriorating. You can pray for me afterwards. Shouldn't be like this. (laughs) Preacher Adam, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. See all the same words? Coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. John here has seen a life-changing vision of what heaven is really like, and he uses Isaiah's words to try and describe it to the people he's writing to. That's what's gone on here. But with two, I think, key differences, and I'm going to tell you about them in a moment. But one of the things I'm growing to appreciate as I get older and my eyes begin to fail is art. I never used to like art, but now I'm getting old, I like art. So there's hope for you if you're not quite there yet. And um, you can look at a picture and you see all this stuff going on in it, right? And there's all kinds of different art pictures. And if you're an artist, just bravo. I, I've just done how you do it. It's just way beyond me. But I love it. Well done. Keep going. And uh, there's some kinds of paintings, right, where you can see exactly what's going on. Right? They've painted it exactly as it is. Realism. Thank you. There's other types of painting where you kind of have to squint and turn your head on the side and back off slightly, and then maybe you can make out what's going on. You know those paintings? Like the Impressionist era, for example. Yeah? Thanks. <laughs> I'm connecting with my creative brothers and sisters right now. You know, and, and the whole point is you're supposed to squint because it's supposed to be impression, the impression of. And some Impressionist pictures, even if you squint, tilt your head the right angle, lean back, and the light is coming in the window, exactly like thing. you've still no idea what it is. And that's the point. And some of them, you can kind of make it out. It's like the same as cameras and focus on lens. I've got a picture. Like, you squint, you can kind of make out, you, you kind of see what it is. You've got to tilt your head 45 degrees too. Right? It's kind of there, but it's not quite in focus. There's a greater clarity that could come. It could be blurrier. You could have no idea there's a building there on the left-hand side of the screen. Tilt your head. What's going on is that as John uses Isaiah's language, he's got some greater clarity. And there's two things that are clearer for us in Revelation that weren't fully clear in Isaiah. These are the two. Number one, the defeat of death. Like, Isaiah almost gets there, right? No infants are going to die. Okay, good. And, uh, and the one who lives to 100 will be considered young. You're like, all right, he's getting there. He's getting there. They're going to be considered cursed if they don't even make it to 100. You're like, okay, almost there. At the end, he's like, there'll be no harming or destroying on my holy man. You're like, Isaiah, you can almost, he's squinting, his head's at 45. He's like, I can almost see it. I can almost reach out and touch it. But I can't quite see it. There's a, there's a, a hint of a hope of a promise, maybe at the right angle at 4 p.m. as the light hits the glass. Maybe. John, he writes, there will be no more death. Right? You've got Isaiah kind of hinting, nudging, wink, tilt, squint. Maybe it's there. John, there'll be no more death. What happened in the intervening 700 years that John can say there will be no death, and Isaiah really can't quite bring himself to say it? Second thing. The presence of God. Again, Isaiah's kind of hinting at it. He's like, even before they ask, I'll hear them. Even while they're speaking, I'll be there. Like the imminence of God is coming in this place in a new way. 
I'm going to rejoice and delight over this place. He's like, oh, maybe God's there. Like if you squint and go the other way, right, it's a bit darker. Maybe you can see it. John, and God lives there. It's his city, it's his home, he makes it with them. The presence of God is there. What happened in the intervening 700 years that enables John to be like, God's there? When Isaiah's like, oh, maybe if I... Something must have happened in the intervening 700 years to give John a greater clarity than Isaiah. As some of you have already shouted out, his name is Jesus. You see, John stood on a hillside just outside Jerusalem and he watched nails get put into the wrists and ankles of Jesus. He saw him cry out from the cross. He saw him breathe his last. He saw life leave Jesus' body. He was the only one of the 12 disciples stood there watching. He watched. On the third day, he's at home with the 11, because Judas isn't there. And uh, Mary rushes in and is like, the tomb's empty, Jesus is risen. And, and he races Peter. It's like, you've got to love the humanity of the Bible. Guess who wins? John, because he's writing it. And... Uh, <laughs> Winners tell the story of history. He's like, I got there first, but I was a little bit scared. I didn't go in. Then Peter came after me because I won, and, and he went in. And we saw, oh, the tomb was empty, and Jesus did rise from the dead. Don't, don't rush to get there or anything, John. He was the one who ran, who saw the empty tomb. He saw death has been defeated. He saw it happen, and he saw him raised. For Isaiah, in his day, he didn't even know the presence of God in the temple. Right? So you read the Old Testament, you find these incredible stories of the presence of God falling into the temple. The priests hit the floor, can't do their work, they're singing, shouting, it's amazing. And then God leaves because the people offend him with their evil, evil deeds and their rejection of his ways. And then Isaiah comes along. He has no concept of the presence of God amongst the people. And so the presence of God in the new creation, ooh. John had rested his head against the breast of a man in whom the fullness of God resided. That's one to think about for a while, isn't it? He had laid back after dinner full of food rested his head on his friend's chest. And his friend was fully God and fully man. Should it surprise us that he's got a slightly different handle on the presence of God? He followed Jesus, uh, John had followed Jesus around for three years and he'd watched mercy fill the streets everywhere he went. He'd seen the dead raised. He'd seen the sick healed. He'd seen the lost found. He'd seen the hungry fed. He knew something about the presence of God on earth. And so when he comes to write his book, he's seen it. And he's seen it by the Spirit as the church has exploded over the known world at that time. And so, of course, God is in the city. The confidence that it brings him having met and lived with Jesus. Just remarkable. You know, earlier on I said we've seen Jesus' response to the stuff that just shouldn't be like this. We've seen more than his response. We've seen his victory. I mean, open your Bible, read it. He heals the sick. He drives out demons. 
He rebukes the storm and it's stilled. He raises the dead. He feeds the hungry. He transforms hearts. You see people utterly changed as you read the gospel. You see him ultimately defeat sin and evil and triumph over death. You know, we don't just go, oh, Jesus hates the things that we hate too. Uh, Jesus says they shouldn't be here. We saw Jesus defeat them as you read the stories. Jesus' victory is what guarantees this promise we've just read. It's not pie in the sky, friends. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, oh, if we get our hopes up and dream about what might be, it's, no, this has happened and is happening and will happen. It's a foretaste of what's to come. You see, Jesus, he walked the streets and he called men, women, and children to repent and to follow him, to turn around and to come with him. It was the invitation to join him in the world that we were created for, to use C.S. Lewis' quote again. It shouldn't be like this. Yeah, come and see what it should be like. Come and see what it looks like when this new that God is bringing in rushes in like a flood. That's the invitation. Friends, the invitation of Jesus, his call to repent and follow him, is the invitation to life. It should be like this. It's the invitation to forgiveness. Guilt, shame, fear washed away. It's the invitation to something that lasts and does not die because death was defeated. It's the invitation to be with Jesus as he makes all things new. Really, the question Isaiah 65 is asking each one of us this morning is, God is making everything new through Christ. Will you let him make you new too? That's the question Isaiah 65 presents. Will you respond to the invitation of Jesus? The offer of, will you come and have life as it's supposed to be, not as it shouldn't be? See, in his vast love for you and for me, God has dove headfirst into the pain and the brokenness of creation that shouldn't be like this, to do what was necessary to make all things new. He took the fullness of the pain of creation upon himself that it might be renewed and that you and I might be renewed. That anyone who comes to him may find life as it's truly meant to be. Isaiah 65 is the fulfillment of what has begun in Jesus. It's the vision of the earth that we are to see all other things that we see in the earth through. It's what enables me to look at incredibly painful situations and not fall into despondency. Because it shouldn't be like this, but I know it will not always be. I know that the heart of God is to transform and make new. And so I can stand pained, hurting, empathetic, interceding in the midst of what shouldn't be because I know what will be. Ever feel overwhelmed by the world we live in? This vision of Isaiah 65 is what you need. It is 
oxygen in the midst of the storm. The Christian life, you may have noticed if you are one, is full of tension. Joe referenced it as he introduced the song. It's like the now and not yet. Like we, it's incredible, but still just terrible stuff happens. It's a painful place to live. It, if anything, the Christian life intensifies the heart cry. I've seen and tasted of something that should be, so when I see what shouldn't be, it hurts even more. You know that feeling? If you're in the midst of tension this morning, if your heart is crying today, if you feel hard-pressed on every side, this story is for you. It's a breath of oxygen in the midst of a storm. <gasps> Before you drown in bad news. Isaiah 64, 5 declares, it will not always be like this. There is hope. And it leads us to cry, come, Lord Jesus, just like Isaiah did. See, future hope, friends, this vision is the secret room of peace in the midst of a storm. What we don't need is a nice, warm feeling that is there when we're here, and then when we come back over here, we get hit in the face again. What we need is that secret room that brings peace to everything else. That's what this story is. That's what this vision is. That's what these words do. This vision is our true north. When life flips you upside down and back to front and you don't know which way you're looking, this story is true north. This is what it should be like. Come, Lord Jesus. If you need oxygen this morning, I invite you to put on your gas mask. Breathe in deeply of this vision. Let it ignite your imagination that you would see the world as it should be and not be squashed by what it shouldn't be. Final thing. Future hope is not really only future hope. It's also present hope. Because the making all things new starts now. In fact, it started a couple of thousand years ago. But it continues today. And you and I are invited to step into the making all things new now. Christian faith is not a ticket to heaven when you die. Church is not a bomb shelter that you hide in until God comes in a helicopter and lifts you out to somewhere else. Friends, the new is already invading the old. It really is. And for the follower of Jesus, we join in. You want to be involved in making all things new? Seems a pretty exciting way to spend your life, from what I've read and my experience so far. Jesus puts it like this. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. For these are the things of the new and not of the old. You want to join in with the new coming. Meekness 
hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Living to make peace. Living to be merciful. Living pure in heart and faithful to God. That's what brings the new into the old. That's the call on anyone who would repent and follow Jesus. Join in with him. Copy his alternative for life. We look at the world outside, we go, it shouldn't be like this. We look at Jesus and we go, it should be like that. And the invitation of the Christian faith is, it, it can be. Oh, it, it is. Come to him and you will find it. It shouldn't be like this. It will not always be like this. And you want to come back up? Can I invite you, church, do you want to rise to your feet? If you're able, just want to take a few minutes to respond. Friends, life following Jesus is the beginning of the renewal of all things. The Christian life is the life of hope that climbs above the daily grind and finds its true meaning and purpose of life with God, the one who is making all things new. If you're looking for meaning and purpose this morning, that's where it's found. And the invitation of Isaiah 65, as I already said, is it asks you the question, does this include you? Do you want to be made new by Jesus? That's the invitation. And for some of us in this room, actually today might be the day we want to choose to respond to that invitation of Jesus. We want to repent and turn from what shouldn't be and follow Jesus into what should be. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond to choose the new, to follow Jesus, to be made new, to receive life, receive forgiveness. For others in this room this morning, you've done that and actually your great need is for that gasp. Because you're drowning. Friends, this picture is pure oxygen. This picture is what holds the hope that enables us to stand firm in a broken and hurting world. It is strength to the weary, hope to those in pain, help to those in need. For some of us this morning, the great call of this passage is to allow our imaginations to be refreshed by something that is more real than the news, something that is more real than the view of the world from the seat that you normally sit in. to enable your heart to cry, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha in the Greek. And so this morning, if you know that call of Jesus is hitting your heart, you're like, yeah, I know it shouldn't be like this. I want it to be like what you're saying, Adam. I want to respond. I want to repent and follow Jesus. I want to invite you to respond this morning just before we sing. I want you to consider what it is you're doing. It's a significant step to move into those that will know salvation, to receive life from Jesus. And if you're like, I know the world should not be as it is, and I want to come to Jesus and find what it should be like, I want to invite you this morning, just say to Jesus, I come to you.
you know this morning, what you need is oxygen in the midst of drowning. I want to invite you to pray the same prayer. Jesus, I come to you.